Amen, amen. Well, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we're saved by Jesus' work. We're changed by Jesus' grace, and we're living on Jesus' mission. And that means that, that we believe we exist as a church to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so part of how we do that is on Sunday mornings as we gather, we, we sing God's praises. We open and read uh, and, and proclaim God's word. We come forward and we remember Jesus' work on the cross at God's table in communion. Uh, and we sing and, uh, uh, and, and worship and all those things. And so um, today we're continuing a series that we began uh, last week in the book of Daniel uh, that we're calling Life in Exile, Life for Eternity. And so on your way in, if you haven't grabbed that, we have scripture journals that we got from Crossway um, to help you just have the whole book of Daniel just clean, clear, uh, ready to go to take notes. Uh, and then as well, uh, we also put together a discipleship guide to let you know kind of the, the themes and, and what we're talking about each and every week through this series that should take us up into kind of kind of right around Christmas time. And I mean like real Christmas time, not, not Starbucks Christmas time that I think starts in like two weeks. Uh, and so uh, anyway, this should carry us through into December. Uh, and then as well, uh, like I said, for middle school, uh, and kind of on down um, in elementary, we got a, an activity sheet that Carrie Ronk is putting together each week that's themed with the sermon uh, to kind of help you follow along. And, and uh, like I said at the beginning, uh, maybe you're a grown-up and you just want a word search uh, and you're like, you know, rather than playing Candy Crush during the sermon, maybe I'll do a Bible word search during it and then it'll be a little more edifying for you. So um, anyway, I, I don't even know who plays Candy Crush, but you know. So does the Lord. Um, okay, anyway, we are going to be in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, I've got a ton of verses to go over. This is a, a big chapter. I think there's like 49 verses in it. I'm not going to read it all from start to finish uh, in one big block. I'm actually going to break it into four separate kind of bite-sized or steak-sized chunks. And as we turn to Daniel 2, um, and, and I want you to ask yourself, when have you been up at night and not been able to sleep? When have you been just kind of kind of haunted by something, that something has consumed your, your very consciousness, and you're just like, hey, is this going to be something uh, that, that is going to possess me? Am I going to be able to process this in a way that, that's life-giving? And then maybe if you're like, well, I don't know if I have something personal, maybe you're just wondering, big picture, are things getting better? Is the trajectory of history one of progress? where everything gets better and better, or is it maybe something different? Is there a disconnect that we experience? And so those are kind of two big questions that this big chapter is going to address here. And so let's just start reading the verses so we can get into it. Daniel chapter 2, I'm going to start with verses 1 through 13. It says this, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had, had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have a dream and my spirit's troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, um, the word for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid to ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and they said, um, 
let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show its interpretation. And the king answered said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. But if you do not make the dream known to me, there's but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. And the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except with God's whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And so the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill him. Okay, so here we are, deep into the Nebuchadnezzar administration. Uh, God's people have been taken from their homeland. They've been brought into a place of exile in Babylon where, where they, they know a bit of their heritage, but now they've been brought in to be part of this nation that is absolutely opposed to the God of the Bible. And, and in this, last week we saw right, that, that Daniel and his friends, they, they were assimilated through their identity and through their appetite, even down to their very names. And, and, and yet, in that, they found a way to navigate it, and God blessed them in ways that, that they actually found themselves graduating, like, top of their class uh, in the Chaldean school. And the Chaldean school um, was for the sorcerers and government kind of combined. Last week, I said it's like Harvard School of Business meets Hogwarts, all in Babylon. And so they graduate from Babylon U with a big degree in, in sorcery and government. And so now they're in the king's court, and they're part of this class of people that the king has been relying on to, to give them wisdom, to help the king like guide matters of state and matters personally. And so he has this troubling dream and it leaves him restless. And what, what is amazing about this is Nebuchadnezzar at this point being king of Babylon, um, they, they were unsurpassed at that time as the world's superpower. He had all authority, all riches, like all, all wealth, like any provision. He had everything he could ever possibly need. And yet, deeply, deeply insecure. He's unsettled. He's like, I've had this dream. I don't know what it means. And he's got this insecurity. Like, I'm unsettled on what this means for me and for my future. It feels like this is something significant. It feels like this might be a turning point in my life or maybe a turning point in history. And while he has great armies and great wealth and great power, he's completely unsettled when he comes to the reality that like, oh my gosh, I have limits. I have limits to my wisdom. I have limits to my understanding. And depending on where he is in life, maybe he just hit 40 and he's realizing he's got limits on his time on earth. And he's going through the midlife crisis. Okay, that's not in the text. I'm just, maybe that's going on in somebody else's heart at this time. Okay. And so he goes to familiar advisors. He goes to the people that he, he has normally worked for him. He says, hey guys, can you guys make this better? I, I, I don't have rest. I'm, I'm totally um, unsettled. And he's surrounded himself with people who've helped him in the past. And, and these people, like, you know, at a certain point in his leadership, they've realized, uh, like, in this relationship, there's only one way to go. We either affirm everything this king does or <laughs> head gone. And, and, and that's a difficult place to be because they don't have an opportunity to, to share the truth. 
And so the king's like, hey, I've got this dream. I, I want you to, to know. Uh, I want to know what's going on. Tell me the interpretation. And just so I know that you guys are being honest and that you guys really do have a divine conduit to some great supernatural wisdom, I don't want you to just tell me the interpretation of my dream. I want you to tell me what the dream was. And they're like, I think he's on to us. I think he knows we don't really know anything. Like, because typically, you know, he probably would have given them a dream and then, and then they would like, I don't know, open up a psychology textbook and kind of like break down like, well, your dream means that, you know, you hate your parents. And, you know, like that would be kind of, like, kind of that sort of deal. And they're like, we don't know anything about the dream. He's asking us total blank slate to receive some divine revelation. And these guys are like, like the king's insecure, but they are completely inadequate to provide any answer at all for the things that are troubling the king's soul. He's realizing he's been drinking from a well that doesn't actually refresh. He realizes that he's been tapping into a source of wisdom that isn't anything more than just what any human has. And so he says, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want you guys to just be vaguely creative, right? I, I want you to know uh, what, I want to know exactly what's going on. And it's like, anytime you watch, um, like, uh, you know, people who claim to be psychics or, you know, that kind of deal, like there was a show a long, long time ago where this guy um, would be in like a big, big stage and, and he'd be on the show and, and, and he'd be like, okay, I'm sensing somebody over here with a letter M or an L in their name. And they're like, I'm Richard. And like, yes, an R. I, I definitely heard an R. And, and, and okay, you're here because you've, you've lost uh, your, your parents. Uh, no, I lost my dog. Yes, your dog. Your dog was like a parent to you. Uh, and, and, like, and so it's just like, just kind of getting fed garbage, right? And then it's kind of like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. He like read everything and knew everything about me. And here the king's like, I am playing that game. You best give it to me all. You tell me the dream. And they're like, hey, King, nobody's ever asked this before. And, and, and we don't have an answer for it. In fact, God, or King, you're asking us to get wisdom even from our gods, and they don't dwell with us. It's the opposite of the God of the Bible, who in a couple months, when we actually do celebrate real Christmas, not Starbucks Christmas, um, we sing about Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Well, for the Chaldeans, for the spiritual elites of their day, their gods weren't with them. Their gods didn't show up when they needed them. And so the king threatens them again. He's like, okay, you'll get great rewards. Actually, you know what? Forget it. You guys can't answer it. I'm just getting rid of all of you guys. Full hostility, full genocide for a whole class of people, and, and he's like, I think you guys are stalling, and uh, they, they kind of know the king, they've been working with the king for a while, like, you know what, the next big news cycle, he'll, he'll go, his attention will move on to other things. He was super excited about COVID, then he was super excited about Ukraine, climate change, that'll be the one that, that'll get him, so we'll just wait for the next big story to come, and the king's like, no, 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 I, I ain't moving on from this story over here until you guys give me something. And in their inadequacy, they just confessed to the king, we, we can't meet your standard. You're asking us something that is impossible. And they appeal to the king for mercy, and, and, and this king is merciless. And so I want you to know, looking at this section, because there's a lot of chunks, you've got to keep moving on, but insecurity plus inadequacy equals instability. 
insecurity for the king, inadequacy from like the Babylonian way of thinking, the Babylonian worldview, the Babylonian gods. Like, like our deep insecurities, our deep anxieties, when we try to answer them with, with Babylon's answers, it's not going to lead to greater stability. It's going to lead to greater instability. And in this case, this instability goes into full hostility, and it is crisis time. And crisis is about to come to Daniel and his friends that we met last week. And that leads us to this next section, Daniel 2, 14 through 24. Let's keep it going. Daniel 2, 14 through 24. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Ahazariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed along with the rest of the wise men or Chaldeans of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong all wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells within him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you've given me wisdom and might. And have made known to me what we ask of you. For you've made known to us the king's matter. goes on to verse 24. Therefore Daniel went on to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went in and said to them thus, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So, bad leadership at a national level, leading to a crisis of thing, like a whole worldview being unsettled. Oh man, the, the narratives of Babylon are getting revealed for their weaknesses. And then in the midst of that, it doesn't lead to a softening of the king's heart. It leads to greater intensity. And all of the ruling class finds themselves under a unjust condemnation. And that includes Daniel and his friends. And what's amazing is we looked last week and we'll see throughout the rest of kind of the narratives here in Daniel in these first six chapters that Daniel and his friends, like, they were faithful to God, right? They, they weren't defiled by the king's table. They were faithful to stand up at moments where they required great courage. And, 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 they didn't wage a, a great revolt against Babylon, but they, they found a way to navigate the craziness of Babylon with compassion and conviction that came from the Lord. And you're thinking, man, they did it all right. They were, they were winsome, right? They, they engaged with the culture. You know, they, they, they took on Babylonian language and practice as much as they felt they could, could do that and still hold true to their, to their real identities. At a certain point, 
We're all called to be faithful. But at a certain point, it doesn't matter how faithful you are. No amount of appeasing Babylon will ultimately keep you safe from Babylon's wrath. Babylon comes for us all. And in this case, they find themselves in great distress. But, but, but while they're in great distress, it doesn't say Daniel's freaking out. I mean, just, just raise your hand if you had somebody from the government showing up to your house saying, hey, by the way, time for me to carry out the extinction order on you. And you're just like, hold on, what's the order about? Let me just pray about it with my friends. I'm super chill, by the way. It's totally cool. No, we'd all be losing our minds. Or maybe you're not losing your mind because you're like, no, no, I got a place in the mountains and I'm better armed than most of the local. Like, like, okay. That, that, okay, that can work for a time. I don't know if the early 90s showed you that eventually the government rolls up and, and like places like Waco and Ruby Ridge, it doesn't go well, does not go well. Daniel, prudent, wise. He brought a peaceful presence to the midst of an absolutely chaotic situation. I, I believe very strongly that adversity reveals our character when we face great challenges. And in this case, I mean, man, Daniel's character is actually kind of showing up and showing off a bit. He's prudent. He's wise. Why is it urgent? Can I have an extension if I'm going to actually deliver? Now, again, if, if you feel like somebody's called you to like give you a word from the Lord right now, I would not recommend you to say, yeah, I got that. Don't worry. I'll get a word from the Lord and bring it to you. This is a pretty unique situation, but what's amazing about this is while probably everybody else is panicking, Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, he's settled and he's stable in the midst of a legitimate crisis, and he sets a totally different tone. And then he goes to his friends, and he says, we need to pray about this. We need to seek the God of heaven to give us mercy in this situation. And in fact, we need to give, have him give mercy to all the other wise men. And so I want to ask you, when have you come to a place in your life that feels like a decision point, that feels like a time of crisis, that feels like a dark night of the soul, that feels like just an undoing and an unraveling of everything that you've understood? You're disoriented, you're discouraged, you're despairing. And then I want to ask you, where do you go? Because I think there's a few options that we typically do. Number one, we look inward. And we look inward because we've been told from a very young age that you're amazing. You're a shining star. You're wonderful. You're, in fact, the strength was in you all along. The, the power was in you all along. And so we look inward. Okay, I can fix myself. I can fix this situation if I just have a little more fortitude. And, and, and maybe some of us realize, no, that's, that's probably not going to work well. You're not going to be the answer for your problems. doesn't mean we don't participate in them. Daniel's active. But you will not ultimately be the answer of your problems or the problems of this world. And so sometimes we look inward. Sometimes we look outward. Okay, um, let me just kind of get friends around me, or let me just kind of, maybe I'll process with somebody else, or like, like may maybe I'll appeal somewhere else, and like, we start to look outside, and again, inward, outward, it's all horizontal. Let me get other people to help me. 
Or maybe let me organize people to, to, to fix this. I mean, like, like D- Daniel and his friends could have, like, tried a, a trending hashtag, save the Chaldeans, right? They could, you know, we'll do some activism. Eventually, if we're the problem or the world's the problem, then we're not going to find the solution there. So you're not going to find it inward. You're not going to find it outward. You have to look upward. And that's what Daniel does. He says, we, we need to appeal to the God of heaven, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who's God is my judge. God who knows what's going on. God who dwells and is with his creation. And in the, the midst of that, what I love is contrasting with the king who's got kind of his yes men around him who never challenge him at all. He, Daniel actually has like a gospel community. Like, like he like shows up to his fellowship group and he's like, guys, here's what I got going on. We need to pray about it. By the way, the whole group's about to die if we don't get, like, get this solved right away. And they pray. They actually say, okay, there's something and someone. God is bigger than us. God is bigger than our situation. And then they do the thing that I think sometimes in like certain theological circles like we don't want to do because we're like, well, I, I really love God's sovereignty. So, so what, what if I just... I, I, I don't want to like pray like a specific prayer for God to do something. He's not a genie. He's not a genie. But they actually pray about the actual circumstances they're in. God change these circumstances. That's an okay prayer. Don't let any like spiritual guilt well up in you when you're in a difficult situation and you just want to see God change it. He may. He may not. We'll see later, actually, I think next week, Daniel and his friends pray a similar prayer, and they kind of just do like the Jesus, whatever your will is, God, whether we live or die, it's up to you. But here they're specifically asking, not just for their salvation, but, but their prayer is that the Chaldeans would be spared. Are you kidding me? This is a huge opportunity. Like, what if they could pray a special prayer? God, save us, but get rid of the rest of the wackadoodles. Oh my gosh, that would be so great. God, could you Thanos snap? like the rest of the Chaldeans away, that would be so great. And then we could be in charge. Our party will be in power. We'll solve this. We've got it. No. He actually, they actually pray for their political enemies, for their religious enemies, for their spiritual and social enemies. When was the last time you prayed for Antifa or the Proud Boys? When was the last time you prayed for Planned Parenthood? That's what they do. I mean, there's another guy who shows up on the scene about 600 years later named Jesus, and he says, pray for your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a convicting word. Because I'm way more of a Thanos snap kind of guy. So they pray, and they ask. And here's what's amazing. God shows up. God shows up. Daniel asks and God answers. Daniel asks and God answers. And and the response, he like either goes to bed that night or whatever. Like all of a sudden he gets a divine vision. Wow. And then he's like, all right, we got this. And the answer, the response to God showing up and acting in our circumstances is worship. And that's the prayer. The prayer that we read here, we don't read what they actually prayed. We just see their response of worship 
to God showing up and intervening in their circumstances with wisdom and power and mercy and light in the midst of darkness. God intervenes in miraculous ways, and the response is worship. He's the possessor of all wisdom and power, and he's the provider of what we need to endure and navigate our seasons of exile. See, he's eternal, it says. He's working in history. It means the changing times are not determined by Nebuchadnezzar's whims, but by God's decree. That God at no moment takes his hand off the throttle and the wheel of history. God is good. And he gets this vision uh, and, and he gets all this clarity. He's like, okay, I think I can go talk to the king now. And that leads us to, to part three. You've probably read some of this before. Maybe if you've been in Christian circles for a while, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you definitely saw a lot of charts around this section. Um, I promise you zero charts today. Um, and so here we are in verse 25 through 45. This is a long one. Probably should have taken a drink of water before, but let's get into it. Here we go. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known the king's interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name, you're able to make known to me the dreams that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in bed are these. He's about to call it. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he reveals mystery made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty of exceeding brightness, stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron um, and partially of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image at its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you, the king, its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over all them. You're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise up after you, yet a third of kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these things. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partially strong and partially brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay. So they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in these days, the king, excuse me, in these days um, of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. It shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into the pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. And with that, Daniel drops the microphone, walks away. Okay, there's a lot here. And we could get into the weeds of every little detail. We can count out every little toe we can find on this statue. I, I said there's no charts. I'm trying to remember, do we have a picture of the statue? Something like that, maybe? Well, okay, there we go. I found a picture. Hooray! Okay, it's a chart. All right. I, I guess I lied. I didn't mean to lie. Uh, you can call it a chart. You can call it an um, uh, a, a image with captions. Uh, and so here we go. Like, we'll just keep this up for a minute. So Daniel is laying out what is about to happen th- through like the next eons of human history. And, and as Nebuchadnezzar hears this, uh, he's like, oh yeah, I remember that dream. You're right. That's the dream. Because on Tuesday night, I had the dream where I was standing in front of everybody and, and, and I was in my underwear and the whole class laughed at me. But then Wednesday was the dream with the statue and the rock. I remember that's the one that kept me up at night. Full disclosure, regularly, particularly on Saturday nights, I have dreams where I show up, I'm still wearing clothes, mind you, okay, but my notes have nothing on them. And the printer doesn't work. And it throws me into a panic and I wake up in a sweat and then I realize, oh, that's why I print on Thursday. Um, And so that's how we navigate those things. There's a little inside baseball for you. With this, however, while Arioch the um, commander of the king's guard tries to take some credit for like solving the issue. Daniel right away points out a big idea that I want to be kind of the overarching theme of the rest of our time today. God's the hero of every story. God's the hero of history and God's the hero of your story. God is the hero of every story. He's the hero of history and he's the hero of your story. See, Daniel redirects all the glory. Like he, he kind of, he gives the, he does say some like nice kingly things. Hey, king, you're great. And all these deals. But what Daniel does is even when the king tries to say, Daniel, you're going to give me the answer. Like, hey, by the way, I've got the whole Price is Right showcase here of stuff. If you're the one that gives me the answer, by the way, if you don't, I mean, I got furnaces, I got lions, I got all sorts of things that could go on. Instead, Daniel says, no man can give you this answer. If, if you think you're going to gain wisdom, if you think you're going to gain guidance in this life and the life to come, then it's going to be from the God of heaven. All truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's God's truth. And so he breaks down and kind of talks about this deal, and we still got the picture up, that's great. He says, hey, king, you are the head of gold. Now imagine the king's surprise or relief. Oh, thank goodness. Given the choices, I think all of us would vote for head of gold. And yet, it goes on to silver and on to bronze, and it's referring from Babylon to the Persian Empire to Greece to the legs of iron of Rome. And then finally, and there's some debate around these things, but it's not relevant to the main point, and that is 
a divided kingdom, and maybe that's the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, maybe that's, you know, I saw one that was like, it's Western Europe, and like, we're toe number seven right now. Like, eh, that's not the point. See, we get fixated on the statue, and we get fixated on the statue, and, what's, and, and there are aspects to learn from it, and it's this. The kingdoms of this earth, the kingdoms we build even individually, they all might possess some glory, some strength, something, some intimidation. I mean, it does say this statue frightened the king. The kingdoms of this earth seem very powerful. And yet, they all have a beginning and an end, right? The head goes down to the neck, right? The chest down, right? And so on and so forth. They're all limited. Their times end. And ultimately, we see they're left in rubble. And so when I asked at the beginning, like, what's the trajectory of history? Kind of like a big philosophical question, but it is, it is one that I think, you know, every generation wrestles with. Like, tell me, tell me we're better than the boomers. Just tell, right? Because you guys were so selfish, so, so I've been told. And I know we're better than the millennials because you guys are selfish. We're not, you know, we're all selfish. But we look back and we say, oh, things were definitely unjust there. And some justice happened. Big wins. Hey, that's great. But what this tells us is not the, the lie that the kingdoms of this world say, that if, if you just get the structures and systems right, it'll all go smoothly. You don't like capitalism? Let's try some communism. Okay, there's some fundamental truths of the world. That is, that there's a God who created everything, that, that his name is Jesus, that he died and rose again, that he's ruling and reigning and returning, and communism fails every time it's tried. I'm kidding, of course. Well, no, I'm not kidding about that. It really does fail every time. Um, the point being, the structure at the end, it says, like, it just won't even hold together anymore because people are so divided. There's no cohesiveness. Like, I mean, the Babylonians, they're pretty awful, but at least they had a good assimilation plan, right? The Romans, like, well, I mean, at least they were iron and strong and powerful. Does anyone believe that we as a people right now are more unified than we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago? And can I submit this? That we are not progressing as a people. But we are in fact regressing. And so we hear a lot about progress. We hear a lot about the, the course of history bends towards justice. And I believe it does because the story ends with God's kingdom. But on our own, in humanity's systems and structures, whatever it is, it never holds together. And I will just submit to you very bluntly that even in my limited lifetime that gets longer each day, we have not progressed as a society morally. We haven't progressed with greater unity and flourishing for individuals and families and communities. And particularly if you're in this region, we've seen peaks and valleys. I mean, right, there was highlights for our region, and we've gone through some very dark times in the last couple of years in our region. And so if we rest in those kingdoms and we get so focused on the statue, we will lose hope. And I think even for some of us who are Christians, right, I want to, like, the whole point of this text is not the statue. It's actually the rock. 
It's the rock that's not hewn from human hands, it says. It's the mountain that represents the kingdom of God that will eclipse everything. And so I think sometimes even as Christians, like we, we look at the world's kingdoms um, kind of like this. I got, I got a picture here now of Seattle, right? Uh, hopefully I got that one. Okay, so, so let's pretend that the space needle's that statue, okay? Right? Like when you think about our, the Northwest, you think about Seattle, you, like the Seahawks are going to play later today. They, they might try to play. They'll take the field, okay? And then in the commercial breaks, what will, what will they show you? We all know flying fish and the Space Needle. And that becomes the icon of our region, right? That's our big statue. And so we look at the, the, our region like this. We can keep the, the picture up. And, and look, the Space Needle, it's bigger. It eclipses everything. Well, you, you know that downtown actually looks different than that. But man, doesn't that look impressive? Doesn't that look powerful? And, and if you don't know, this is its 60-year anniversary. So 1962, that was built for the World's Fair as a symbol of future progress, of the, the great world that is to come in the next 60 years. And, and, and now I think if you walk through downtown Seattle, and I'll be frank, I've only been there a couple times in the last few months, it's not the space needle you see, it's other needles that define our region. The great promises of the kingdom of 1962 uh, and that space needle have, have not been there. But what happens is we still think, this is so big, this is so powerful, this is so imposing. And if you're a Christian, you're like, but I know the kingdom of God is there. And I think we have a perspective that looks like this picture where the kingdom of this world is really, really big. And if the kingdom of God is a mountain that starts small and grows, it's kind of in the distance, right? There's Rainier, right? What, what's, what's bigger in the picture? Our kingdoms. And what Daniel is saying, and this is what the point of the text is, is don't focus on the kingdom, but understand what is actually happening in history is not this picture, but the next picture. The mountain eclipses everything that's happening in our kingdoms. Our kingdoms are still going on, okay? Right? We, should, we should pray for our cities. We should work in our cities. You should have good jobs and you should invest and you should, you should build and, and we should take care of, of people who are suffering addiction and we should engage in, in loving the poor. Like, like, yes and amen. Like, that's what we're called to do even in exile. Jeremiah says that in Jeremiah 29. Seek the welfare of the city. But while you're doing that and you're getting discouraged and you're getting beat down, remember this image is what is currently, presently real. God's kingdom is bigger and greater and over all of our kingdoms that have ever happened or will ever happen. And there's a day coming that doesn't look like this picture, but looks like the next picture. Just the mountain. Just his kingdom. That the things that we build, they'll be gone but they'll repla be replaced with something infinitely more glorious. I mean, man, statues are great, right? Like, you know, my daughter might go to New York for a choir trip. I hope she sees the Statue of Liberty. You go to Washington, D.C., you see all these statues. But you come to the Northwest, you best not be going on a statue tour. I hope you're going to see in the mountains. I mean, we're blessed in this area to have mountains because mountains represent a place to dwell, a place to have perspective. Uh, Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. We can make the best statues imaginable. We can make the Space Needle. We can make downtown Seattle. We can make stadiums. We can do whatever. 
but nobody's ever made anything as amazing as a mountain. That's what our God does. And that's the kingdom he's building in and through his people from a stone not cut from human hands. And so I want you to know that it's not about the statue. It's about the rock. It's about the mountain. The rock is Jesus. And the mountain is God's kingdom in the midst and eclipsing all other kingdoms. So it's a stone not cut by human hands, not the work of men, but it represents his everlasting kingdom. And he tells this to the king. So we don't need to worry about the statue because we stand on the rock. And that's what gives us hope. That's what helps us endure. And that this rock and this mountain, it says he's ever growing and ever glorious and it eventually shatters all the kingdoms in history. So Daniel answers the interpretation that starts off like, hey, you're the guy of gold, but by the way, your kingdom, gone. And that's a good thing. And, and like, God gives that vision to like evil King Nebuchadnezzar. It's crazy that God would use even non-believers hostile to the gospel and in great pride and yet God works and moves. And Daniel says this interpretation is certain and true. And like I said, that's a mic drop moment. And now it's up to Nebuchadnezzar to respond. And for you today, if you're focused on your kingdom, this is a time for you to respond. If you're, maybe even you're a Christian that it's still kind of in that like Seattle picture with the mountain in the background, like I know the kingdom's there, I'm just so worried about this kingdom here. And you need perspective shift, shifted. We see in these last verses as we close how Nebuchadnezzar responds to the rock and how we should respond to the rock. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. And he commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, and you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So we read this. And if you just like surface level read this, and didn't know where the story's going, you might think for a second that Nebuchadnezzar actually became a Christian at this point. And the reality is, he really likes Daniel's God. He's for Daniel's God as much as Daniel's God will show up and help his agenda. At the end of the day, the king's allegiance is not to that great kingdom. He's still the head of gold. And we'll see that in the next chapter, he's like totally lost the point because after receiving this dream, he goes on a new building project campaign. Like, make Babylon great again, build back better statue. And he builds a statue from head to toe of gold. That's the spoiler for next week. You should come back because it's still important. So he's missed the point. He likes the God of the Bible. He likes Daniel's God, but he's not ready to actually submit to Daniel's God or recognize that Daniel's God and kingdom is bigger than his own. 
See, um, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 20. I believe he's talking about this in some regards. He says this in Luke 20, verse 17 and 18. Jesus talking to them, and he says, but he looked directly at them, and he said, what is this that is written? The stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, he's talking about this stone that has not been hewn with human hands, that's actually rejected by the builders. We, when we are not aligned with the Lord, are builders of our kingdoms. He says there's a couple different responses. Either you'll fall on the rock, admit your brokenness, and let the Lord put you back together so you can stand on the rock, or the rock will crush you. And I know that's difficult, but it is a decision point that while Daniel and the Babylonian guys, they were maybe under a unjust condemnation, that all of us have actually sinned. All of us have sin that separates us from God. That if not dealt with, actually does lead to, I hate to say it, condemnation. But the good news of the gospel is that we have a God who's not, whose dwelling is not away from us, but is with us, who shows up. A God who's greater than Daniel, who says, I see the problem, I see the problem of condemnation. I can stand in the gap of that, and I can give freedom and life. And he does so, Jesus does so, by going to the cross for his friends, yes, but to be clear, for enemies. That apart from the grace and mercy of God, that's our status. That in Christ, you're not an enemy. You're not a Chaldean or a Babylonian. You're a son or daughter of the one true king. And so in a moment, we're going to invite you, if you're a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, to come forward and take communion. And remember, his body broken for you as a sacrifice for your sin. His blood shed for you, cleansing you from sin, delivering you from condemnation, and leaving you clean. Making you part of a kingdom that has no end. That is truly glorious. That is truly life-giving. And because we don't have to worry about I just want a vision. I want a dream. I wish God would give me a word. What we have is far better. We have the resurrected Jesus who lived, who died, and who rose again, who is seated on the throne now, that God is sovereign with his power and his provision. And he, he stands in for his enemies to make his enemies his friends. And that's such good news that we see in the cross that God is righteous. That just, like the bad Babylonian king said, okay, I'll give you a minute as long as you can give me the right answer. But God says, no, I'm going to be patient with you, hoping it leads to your repentance and ultimately to your allegiance, to your affections. Because unlike some goofy statue, he's worthy of, to be held in glory and power like an amazing mountain. And so there's moments where we're going to feel like we're in exile, but I want to remind you that you are a citizen. If you're in Christ, you are a citizen. So take your eyes off the statue, stand on the rock, and know 
that your life is certain and true when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.